0: Dose of Leadership podcast, episode 124.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. I'm so happy to have on my show today Shane
0: Snow. He is a New York City-based technology journalist and web entrepreneur, currently the co-founder and chief creative officer of Contently. He's originally from Idaho, and he holds a master's degree in journalism from Columbia University. He's a member of Sandbox Network, and the Royal Society of the Arts. He writes for Wired Magazine and Fast Company and has designed infographics for MTB, Gizmodo, and the United Nations. He has an unhealthy obsession for pizza and loves science surprises and pet ferrets. You had me all the way till the ferrets there, Shane. Welcome to the Dose of Leadership podcast.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. Uh, pleasure to be here.
0: I'm just teasing with you. I, I, I'm I just, my daughter just got a guinea pig, and she wanted a ferret, so I settled on a guinea pig, and I love the guinea pig, so I probably, if I had a ferret, I probably would fall in love with it, but, gosh, thanks for coming on the show, my friend.
2: Yeah, yeah, you know, ferrets, they're a little bit more trouble than other pets, but uh, they're really fun, (laughs) so uh, it sort of depends on how much maintenance you want to do.
0: Right. Well, gosh, man, I'm so, the reason why I brought you on the show is, you know, I I love, I talk to all kinds of, um, you know, leadership is for everybody, and I think sometimes we get... Uh, this kind of perception that leaders for the CEOs and the people with the titles but you know I love talking to solopreneurs or entrepreneurs or people who do things unconventional and I love your blog I love your writings and uh, you just strike me as one of those guys who started to do things kind of the unconventional way the, the non-standard way and uh, to me that's at that, that the heart of leadership so tell us a little bit more about yourself your background and, uh, and just let's educate, educate us on you.
2: Well, thank you. First of all, that's uh, all those things are really kind things uh, to say. I uh, So I grew up in Idaho, um, and I think, you know, thinking back on the reason I sort of approach my career the way I have, uh, I think about two things that happened growing up. One is my dad is an engineer, uh, and he was always fixing stuff, and he was always building stuff and kind of forcing my brothers and I to help him you know, build roofs or repair cars and things. And he taught us this lesson over and over again that, it's better to work smart than to just work harder. Mm. Uh, and not that hard work isn't required to do great things, but you can work just as hard the stupid way as the smart way. Um, and so I kind of always took that with me in my approach to whatever I'm doing. And I think that's really the entrepreneurial mindset. Uh, he would always sort of teach us these lessons where he'd say, try and pry this nail out of the floor, and We try and it would be this impossible nail. And then he'd show us, Hey, if you, turn the, you know, the hammer into a lever, you, you know, put a pipe on it or something, you get a lot of leverage, then you can pry the nail out easier. They tried to sort of teach us those lessons. So I kind of take that mindset with me. Uh, The other thing, though, that I think is really important that I underestimated until, you know, recent years is uh, my mom really inspired uh, a lot of confidence in me and kind of told me, you know, you can do whatever you want and anything's possible because, you know, you're a great kid and all that. And I think... That's you know probably rare, I guess. <laughs> yeah. For a lot of a lot of people that she, I had this unbounded, uh, boundless confidence, um, and also you know read tons of books and things, and so I guess growing up in that kind of environment, also Idaho is an extremely boring place. <laughs> you know, as pretty as it is, it's it's totally boring. Uh, so you end up, I guess, looking for clever, creative things to do. So I grew up building tree forts and you know, designing things and trying to make money at school when I was a kid. And when it came out, I immediately started uh, building internet businesses and, you know, trying to, you know, create basically websites that I could sell stuff or sell advertisements. And um, so I grew up kind of doing all of that. And, uh you know, it's funny. I, didn't, I just thought that that was, you know, fun. And now I realize that that's... Uh, it, is actually where a lot of uh lessons in you know learning to work creatively and to work smart and i think also from an entrepreneurial standpoint learning to make lots of mistakes on sort of small uh and uh, i guess low stakes uh entrepreneurial endeavors you know when i could uh and that has has made me i guess more willing to take risks now at bigger things which are you know kind of what i'm working on now
0: Well, it's a testament, you know, listening to that story, it's a testament to, uh, it sounds like that was, from an early age, you were just kind of brought up in this, maybe not consciously, but an entrepreneurial mindset that your mom, you know, instilled that in you, and obviously your father would too. There's a combination of of values there that kind of just created this, um, that's how it is. You didn't know any other way, I guess. Um, You're around a lot of entrepreneurs. You're you're around a lot of people in, in, um, you know, that creative mindset. Do you think there is an entrepreneurial revolution starting to happen
2: yes absolutely uh, and i think there are a few reasons for that i mean for me i moved to new york about five years ago and it's been really drastic the contrast between today and when i moved to new york the entrepreneurs see the tech especially uh, entrepreneurial scene here in new york i mean new york is a place full of entrepreneurs everyone moves here to make their dreams happen uh but it's crazy how much technology has accelerated that and I mean I don't go a day without meeting someone who says that their next move is they want to start a company Um, and and, you know I wasn't hearing that as much before not nearly as much and I think what we saw especially with technology I think anytime technology changes or advances throughout history whether it's you know going from bronze to steel or whether it's the you know microchip being invented that's when uh, entrepreneurial opportunities happen is in sort of the liminal space Uh, when things are changing. And, you know, what we saw in Silicon Valley and the culture that's uh, developed there is because so much technology is happening, so many people are working on interesting things, there are a lot of people that kind of by proxy, you know, proximity, uh, become interested in doing something entrepreneurial there. Well, now because of the Internet, everyone in the world are hearing those stories and seeing those stories and being affected by the inventions and the businesses that are being created by, you know, a lot of young people or a lot of people who are new to entrepreneurship. I think, you know, Facebook, I have really mixed feelings on Facebook as a, you know, as a company and as a utility. But one thing that it's really done that's incredibly positive is shown everyone in the world who's connected to the internet uh, that, you know, a young kid in a dorm room can create a massive and impactful business. uh, And without, you know, Having tons and tons of capital or people to start with, and that those things, you know, capital and employees and followers and believers come after you invent something rather than sort of in the old days where you had to have money to make money. Um, and so I think all of that has kind of swirled into this uh, cocktail that's become this entrepreneurial culture that, you know, we've seen, especially in America, but I think, you know, I keep reading these stories worldwide about. I'm kind of rambling at this point, but I have a, a good friend who spent some time recently in Burma, hanging out with uh, the entrepreneur, the tech entrepreneurs there, and they have these, you know, hacker spaces and co-working spaces where you know they still have to go and restart the internet every you know couple hours because the power goes out. But they're working on these incredible things, and they're inspired by what they've seen on the internet. And so I think you know the short answer to your question is there's definitely a surge. Because technology is becoming more accessible, um, and and that's bleeding into other industries. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm writing a story right now about uh, shoe design. You know, it, it, that's not the first thing you think of when you think of you know, microchips and the internet. But uh, you know, the things that are happening there because of technology are really interesting, and that's leading to more entrepreneurship too.
0: Yeah, you know, I I'm, I, I love your answer, and I I I ask that because as you know, I'm 45 going on 46, and I was really an entrepreneurship in the late 80s you know i went to an entrepreneurship camp right when i graduated high school right before my first semester of college i thought about majoring in it they, my school i went to um started an entrepreneurship major and it's and i went away from it and i i got to the pilot path and be, went in the marine corps but i've always been fascinated with entrepreneurship i never i consider myself one now for sure and i've surrounded myself with more entrepreneurs in the last 5 6 years and it seems different though when I can contrast it to 30 years ago. It's a it's it's totally different. It's refreshing to me and it's exciting because on one hand I see if I turn on the standard media outlets, the TV, um, if I go to the kind of standard uh, kind of mindset of people that I've known for years and it's still kind of that, there seems a huge dichotomy of, of thinking that I have to go get a four-year degree, I have to go... Um, you know, try to become accountant, an orthodontist, a doctor or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I guess what I'm trying to say is you see people kind of this leaving school with this inordinate amount of debt, kind of do what they think they're supposed Mm -hmm. to do. And it just seems like there's a bubbling or this surge of kind of people that are in college now, I guess it's the millennials that are just getting excited about, look, I don't have to do things the conventional way. And that gets me really excited and gets me really hopeful for the future and what were your thoughts on yeah
2: I mean definitely I think that's you know it's very positive education is one of those industries that I think we're gonna see a lot of change in Uh, there's going to need to be because of that you know because again because of the internet uh, you can get the information that you need to build a career to build a business without even stepping inside of a school um, and, you know, of course, there are other things that great educational institutions can give you, such as mentorship and networks and, you know, one-on-one education that may accelerate your learning. But, I mean, there's this kid, uh, I think his last name is William Tom Quamba, I think is how you pronounce his name, Who uh, uh, the boy who harnessed the wind, or William and the windmill, I think are uh, right. the names that people have given him. He's this kid in, in Africa who grew up in this poor village, and he... Basically, learned from libraries and the internet uh, how to build an electric generating windmill for his village, and he built that. And it, you know, it, was, it looks a little Doctor um but it was this crazy story that uh, you know he was able to do this without going to school, brought power to his village, and then you know he wrote a book about it, and I think there's a documentary. But things like that are happening, which are really interesting and really cool. And I, I think you know for schools, it's probably a little scary because they have to. I guess, adapt so that they can continue to provide value and provide the unique value that they can. But all of, I think the, the more information we have collectively, the better it is. Uh, and, and you're right. There's, I mean, I think convention is probably one of the most evil things uh, out there. Yeah. Sometimes convention can speed, you know, work along, but in a lot of cases, convention slows us down from, uh, I guess, thinking about what we can do, uh, rather, because we're so focused on what we're being told to do, um, you know, there's a thing I wanted to say too. While I'm, I guess, rambling again, uh, you, you know, your career in the Marines brings up another thing that I I recently wrote about that I've been really interested in. Is you're starting to see this kind of non-conventional thinking and invention, uh... entrepreneurship, essentially happen in places like the Marines. Nice. I just learned about this. Uh, the Marines Expeditionary Energy Office, I believe it's called, that uh-huh. um, they are taking solar technologies that are being developed and putting it on the front lines of the battlefield to help them save fuel and uh, keep troops out of danger. And it, this innovation is happening not for cost reasons, because the military, you know, has tons of money, but uh, primarily to help people's lives. and And that's really cool. And I think that. Is you know a tiny example of a shift that you see also with the uh, entrepreneurial culture, especially among young people. Where I mean, there are still many people who are building businesses because they want to make money. But there are a lot of businesses starting with kind of this higher purpose, mm. uh, where you know the economics are secondary and kind of a an assume an assumption that if you build something that helps people. The money and the economics will work out, and I think that's really
0: positive. Yeah, you hit on so that's. A, I love that you said that because I've I've had a few conversations on this show, and I think that is the key. That is the difference that I'm noticing, and that was what I was trying to articulate. What I saw maybe 30 years ago when I went to this entrepreneurship camp, it was more about you know of course this is the late 80s, and it was more about the the um the individual. It was more about the um all about the profit and the making the money and the freedom. It was less about doing something bigger than yourself. You didn't hear a lot of that talk. What I see now, and especially in young entrepreneurs, but that seems to be the overriding theme, I think, when, when I talked about the revolution. That is the kind of the, the overriding theme that I see is different, is that people want to be part of something bigger than themselves. And that is a recipe for great success, in my opinion. If, if people are thinking that way, man, great things can happen there. Because that's how great organizations, great leadership really thrives, is when you get people to... You know that's how you get people to mm-hmm. know, climb, climb. You know brick walls with their bare hands and spend the long hours because they want. They feel like they're part of something unique and special. And uh, yeah,
2: exactly. And I, I think you know we see that in our business. Recruiting top talent is you know very challenging,
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and it's much easier to do that when people believe in what you're doing than if you're just trying to you know make a slightly higher offer than the next guy.
0: Right. Right. You know, Simon um, Sinek, I mean, he talks about that a lot, how, um, you know, that's kind of his whole book, you know, Start With The Why, that was his kind of revelation that um, if you start from that way in, and, you know, that's why Apple was so successful, right? I mean, because they didn't, you mm-hmm. know, from a technological standpoint, you had, you know, basically the same thing, operating systems, everything else, but he starts from the why, you, you know, the big purpose, and people get excited about it. That's why people buy. People buy things because of your why, not because of your what. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm cur- yeah, yeah, I love that. I'm curious about you know how you kind of fell in or or um, started realizing how the importance of leadership as a startup. You know, and I've had conversations with entrepreneurs, and they, they one entrepreneur, an older gentleman, he's in his uh, 80s now, and he told me he says, "Well, you can either be a great leader, or a great entrepreneur. You can't be both." And I disagree with that wholeheartedly. I think. <laughs> Great entrepreneurs uh can be great leaders um, what's your thoughts on that how did you how did you get or how did leadership kind of hit you in your face in in the startup was it intentional from the beginning or did it kind of sneak up on you
2: yeah um so i mean there there's two things in there one I wholeheartedly agree with you that entrepreneurship and leadership are not mutually exclusive and I think you know, the best entrepreneurs are able to inspire people to follow them, uh, especially in the early days of a, a company or an initiative when all you have is the vision. And you don't have a reputation. You often don't have money. Um, you know, it's that inspiration that keeps you going until you hit solid ground and you have, you know, a real business. And that uh, leadership is, you know, the only way to truly really make that happen. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I totally agree, uh, with you on that one. And I guess in my own career, I mean, leadership is one of those things that I feel like for me has not been, know well, how to put it, so that, that's not the thing that I'm actively thinking about, I right. guess, when I'm doing what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, it's, it's sort of a byproduct, I guess, uh, maybe sort of a necessity, um, you know, of building something or. I mean, even if you're building something on your own or promoting something, um, you know, thought leadership I think is that's uh, one of the great things about publishing and the internet and you know and technology, you know, since the radio or newspapers or whatever we can start publishing, uh, is the ability for one person to uh you know, inspire others with their communication without having to be there in person and so and that's you know how a lot of businesses get uh, followers and traction in the early days. I don't know. I I mean, I keep feeling like now that we're though my company, Contently, which is the company I'm running right now, uh, with two partners, uh, we have you know about 30 people, and we'll probably be 75 by this time next year. So I've been thinking maybe I should buy a book on management or something <laughs> because uh, the more people, the you know, the different it gets. But I think for me, my guiding principle has been. Caring about people first, um, mm. sort of another one of those phrases that uh, you know that my my dad always said is people are more important than stuff. Right. So my mom, bless her heart, uh, was always crashing the car into things. She would back it up into the gas pump, and she you know run over the hedge, and <laughs> she's always doing stuff like that. Um, she's a wonderful person, but I mean, she's a terrible driver, and kind of you know ended up doing a lot of things like that. And my My dad always used that as a lesson. He never got upset, you know, about the scratch paint or the ruined car. He always asked, you know, are you okay? And he always said, kids, remember, your mom is more important than the car. And I think like that, think about that kind of a lesson when you apply it to business or to, you know, running a company or even what you're building when you're building something. If you think about people first, that, I mean, that forces you to be, in the position of a leader. And I guess, you know, Simon Sinek's other book that is coming out this year, maybe it just came out, it's called Leaders Eat Last. Right. Um, I heard him give a talk about it. Uh, it. It sounds so good, but basically the premise is that in, you know, the caveman days, uh, the leader was the one who went first when you went hunting and who ate last. You know, the leader is the one who makes sure that the people are taken care of first. Um, and uh, And that's I mean I think that's a really good lesson. I'm I'm excited to read the book after hearing him speak about it. But I think that's kind of the for me, I don't know that I actively pursue leader and I don't even know that if people in my company would consider me like the leader. We you know, we have I have two co founders that do an amazing job at inspiring people. But I think it's that people first mentality that makes
0: a difference. Well, I love your answer and I think you're absolutely right. Sometimes we I the thing that drives me crazy about, you know, I'm not into th- ethereal academics, and sometimes I think we make leadership harder than it needs to be, and you hit it right on the head. Um, leadership is about people and people first, and, and, you know, one of the great lessons I got when I was early on in, when going through my um, officer training in the Marine Corps, and, and a pretty senior enlisted guy was just having a conversation with me, and he said, you know, you can sum up, you know, you can become a great officer and have a great career in the Marine Corps if you just understand that if you take care of them, they're going to take care of you. And it's as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Now taking care of them doesn't mean you're, you're babysitting them, but you're just, you're doing, you're always doing the right thing for them and you're right. It's a, it's a people first mentality. It's an outward focused mentality. So I, I love that because you're, you've, you've obviously, and what I love about it is, is I love that story about your dad and just that, how that resonated with you. You know, a simple thing about, you know, your mother, you know, having trouble with the car, and then he always went back to that. And you remember that, and that can, but that is the the true essence of leadership, in my opinion. I don't know. I love that. And I love you. I love your answer, by the way. So, um,
2: thanks. You, know, you, know, you bring up a good point. That something I'm concerned about myself. You know, when it comes to do with leadership, is allowing people to do their best work is often about letting go. Yeah, absolutely, and not yeah. uh, you know not not hovering. And, uh, you know, part of, I think, a a common sort of uh, feature of entrepreneurs is uh, precision and kind of uh, micro-management and obsession. And, you know, I think good leaders are able to recognize when to step in and help people, uh, but empowering them rather than doing things for them is really, you know, what's going to help them the most. And I I think for me, that's hard, um, and that's something that I personally want to get better at. And I mean, I understand that that's helping them more if I can take that approach than if uh, you know I take the short-sighted of approach of helping them of fixing it for them, right? Uh, or maybe even saving face for them uh, if they do something wrong. So yeah, that's something that I'm. I, I think I'm going to have to work on in the next little bit.
0: Well, I think everybody does. I mean, you know, I think just understanding and and you know going back to your original part of like, why well, you don't know if you intentionally think about it. The great news is, is you, there's a great foundation there. And I think all great leaders um, understand first and foremost, like you said, that it is about people. The other part where you step up your game as a leader, like you said, is, is, wow, you know, being intentional about it and being humble about it. Like you said, I think um, it's a lifelong process that never ends. It's not like, and it's funny that you said, I need to buy a book about management and this and that. I mean, there's so many of them out there, but I think that, yeah. um, you know, the the idea of being willing to be intentional about it is a huge step. And I think a lot of times people think leadership is not for them, that they don't look at themselves as leaders. And where I'm coming from is that everybody needs to think and act. You know, it's for everybody, it's not about your position, your title. And the more that you can, in your company, create everybody to think and act like a leader, that's when things really transform, in my opinion. You know, you surround, I like that. you know, as a journalist, you surrounded yourself. Um, well, you know, tell the story. I th- this is what I think, th- this highlights a lot of what attracted me to have you come on the show Tell the story about how you um, as a young journalist you're struggling you're trying to get noticed it's a noisy world out there How did you get wired which is a, a prominent magazine to pick up your stuff that's got to be difficult they, they isn't, isn't it a traditional conventional path to, to become a um, a writer talk about that stuff Oh
2: yeah oh yeah um, and I, I've written about this too and I, uh, so I get this question from a lot of journalists because you know I'm a young journalist I've only, only been at it for a few years. Um, and, uh, yeah, Wired is, I mean, I think they won the award for magazine of the decade or something. they're not the biggest magazine, but they, they have a loyal and very massive following. Um, so I, when I decided I wanted to become a journalist, it was really because I I wanted to back up a little bit. I had this moment of crisis in my life where I was doing stuff on the internet and I put myself through school and I was kind of feeling like I was climbing the walls in Idaho and wanted to either meet people who were interested in what I was doing and couldn't, you know, find many of them or kind of like get out and, and I don't know, find myself. Um, and so I ended up moving to Hawaii to kind of think about life and, you know, think about what I believed and what I wanted to do. And that was where I decided that what I really loved was journalism. And for a lot of the reasons that I loved entrepreneurship, you kind of have to be enterprising and you find the stories and, you know, you do things on your own, you hopefully make things happen. Um, I really loved writing, so when I moved to New York because so I wanted to be a writer, uh, I decided. Well, journalism and technology entrepreneurship are the you know the two things that I have. That means I should write for Wired magazine, and that was my favorite magazine, and I you know I really wanted to write for them. Um, and you know the story was I initially actually came up with a really good story idea, and I pitched you know one of the editors at the print side of Wired, um, and he you know he sent me a nice note back that basically said, hey. I appreciate the, you know, the enthusiasm and the pitch, but got to tell you, you know, you are unknown and unpublished and, uh, we don't, you know, assign stories like this, uh, to people, you know, that have no experience Mm -hmm. like you. Basically said, come back in a few years when you have some more notches, you know, on your belt. And, uh, you know, I was kind of depressed and I thought, well, you know, it's the, you know, 2000s and there should be a meritocracy and the internet and all of that and, uh, you know, good story should be a good story no matter who you are. But the, the convention in journalism and in the magazine world, uh, was kind of put there because there are so many people that want to be writers. And the convention is you have to earn your dues before right. you can write for the big guys. And, uh, what I ended up doing is, uh, sort of building a backwards ladder to wired. So I, uh, you know, I asked myself, what is the minimum sort of required credibility to, uh, to write for Wired, well, it's probably a similar magazine that's maybe a little smaller. Um, well, what would be the minimum credibility to write for that magazine? Well, it's probably you know the web version of that magazine or maybe you know another magazine that's a little smaller. And so, kind of, basically arrived at the conclusion that you know I was unknown, I was unpublished, I was going to pick a tiny publication that was sort of an anti-platform, uh, you know, would be willing to publish anyone. Uh, regardless of experience because they, you know, were new or young or desperate. Um, And so I started pitching stories to those kinds of blogs, essentially, uh, you know, small tech and social media blogs. Ended up writing a few stories uh, for one blog, and then I pitched sort of the next rung up. uh, And I wrote a few stories for those. And you end up, I mean, you have to be a salesperson, essentially, to be a freelance journalist. So you end up pitching a lot of people and no one writes back or people say no. But, you know, once you get in, you can, you know, develop a long-term relationship. So I wrote for this blog called The Next Web, which has gotten pretty big now, but at the time it was one guy. I used that to uh, climb up one rung to uh, Gizmodo, which at the time was a lot smaller. Um, Now it's pretty big. Uh, I used that to get to, you know, Mashable and Social Media Examiner and some other ones. And I went for Mashable after I wrote, you know, a few dozen stories for Mashable uh, I pitched Fast Company, which is a you know, great tech and innovation magazine, one of my favorites now. Um, I wrote some stories for them online, and then I went back to Wired, and I said, "Hey, I've written for you know all of these places, including you know Fast Company, which is kind of uh, you know just like a hair smaller than than Wired. Um, here's a story idea, and, and then they finally published me. And this all happened." You know, in the course of about six months. Of course, I had, you know, had a great story idea that had, had sort of fallen in my lap. Um, but the normal process for doing that, for writing, and I write for Wired all the time. I'm, um, You know, this morning, I actually just finished a, a feature story that I, I turned in for them that'll come up with an upcoming issue. Um, but the normal process for writing for the print side of Wired Magazine is getting a job as like an intern and hoping you make the cut and get picked up as a really low-level employee and working there for years Eventually, they let you write a couple stories. Um, then, when you know someone dies, you get a senior writer position, um, and then you know you do that forever until they let you write features. And it takes years and years. Um, so, I, I think the other prerequisite is you have to be good at finding stories. You have to be good at writing, and I think I'm, you know, medium at that. But I was able to hustle and sort of replace the convention with uh, proof. Really, what the editors are looking for is proof. Yeah, um, and becoming an intern and climbing your way up the ladder is not the only way to prove yourself. And so, I basically—that was sort of my hack, I guess—to to work up to that. And now I write for them. I still write for Fast Company, and I, I love all of it. And uh, you know, and that's been a great platform for me um, as a you know both a writer and an op- entrepreneur.
0: Well, I love that story. I love the fact. I mean, you're right. It's a given. You got to have content. Well, let's just assume that that's there. I mean, you got to have you got to be competent in, in what you're doing. And so let's just assume that that's what the case was and It obviously is. I love the idea, the fact how you, you turned it around, looked at, turned it on its head and said, there's got to be a different way. And I love the tenacity. I love the stick to it, stick to it, if that's a word, you know, and just, um, how you never gave up. And I think that is so quintessential to being in a successful leader and a successful entrepreneur. I just love that story. There's so many lessons to be gained from that. So kudos to you Thanks. my friend. Well gosh I love your stuff. I love how, you mean, it's even hard to, you know you would I don't even call you a technology journalist because you write about so many different stuff and it's fun to read and I love reading and I love reading blogs and and um, I'm so glad I came across your stuff and I just think your story is is more inspirational than you give it credit for and I hope young people and old Thank people old, old people like will, will follow your stuff. So how can people find you how can people get connected with your writing and your work?
2: Uh, well, my website is just my name, shanesnow.com, there's links to sort of everything from there. Um, if you just Google my name too, I think it's the first result. Um, but uh, you are the most flattering person I've ever met, Thank <laughs> you. That's like, so kind of you, I, I feel like I, I don't deserve half of that, but uh, I'm glad to have you know, provided a little bit of, uh, of inspiration.
0: Well, I love it, man. I hope people come find you, and um, I know you, you, they can connect with you on uh, LinkedIn, Google+, Twitter, all that stuff, and um, they got links to it. And uh, I'll, I'll put a link to this uh, for all your writings, and um, hopefully people will enjoy it as much as I have. So uh, thanks for coming on the show, Shane. It's
1: been so much fun talking to you.
2: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: We'll talk to you soon.
1: He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.